let's let's pray together. Father, this is your moment. Every moment is your moment. But this specific moment, we ask that, Lord, you speak for your servants are listening. We ask that you speak and you have spoken in your word, in the faith once for all delivered to the saints, you have spoken. Now, Father, help us to hear your voice. Help us to hear you speak in your word. Help me, Father, to proclaim your truth, to unpack your word, to rightly divide it, Father, so that, Lord, saints are equipped. So that, Father, sinners are convicted. So that, Father, lost people are converted by Your sovereign, gracious, merciful hand. Father, I just ask that You speak for me. For, Lord, apart from You, I can do nothing. Lord, it is in Jesus' mighty name that I pray. Amen and amen. Well, I invite you to take your copy of the Word of God and turn again to the little tiny book of Jude. Now, I know we, various reasons, last week we, we took a break from Jude, but we're, we're right back in here today, and we're going to pick up exactly where I left off two weeks ago. And I want to read to you this morning verses 12 and 13. Verses 12 and 13. As we'll continue to be uh, looking at this section of, of Jude that, that, that I'm titling Heretics Unmasked or False Teachers Unmasked. Looking at who they really are. And I pray that we will be aware of their presence. The church at large, the visible church, the church as is scattered throughout the world, that we would be aware that there are those among us that seek our harm, though they may not know that that's what they're doing, they're puppets of Satan. And we must be aware of them. And we must be aware of them as we contend for the faith, the Scriptures, the purity of the Gospel, as Jude has talked about in the beginning of his epistle, his letter. But beginning in verse 12, Jude continues on and he says, These are, these, these who? These that have crept in among us unawares. These are hidden reefs at your love feast, as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by the winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead and uprooted, 
wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. This is God's Word. Now, before we walk through those couple of verses, I I feel like I need to um, clarify something for you. Uh, If you will recall, we wrapped up that last section by discussing what the way of Cain was. The way of Cain is that uh, way in which men will construct their own way using human ability to approach God. And I told you that one of the classic examples of that was seen in the British monk Uh, who was condemned at the Council of Ephesus, his name was Pelagius. I told you that we see in the church world today all kinds of forms of Pelagianism and what we call semi-Pelagianism. And then I mentioned, and I just feel like I need to clarify and give you an example of this, I mentioned to you that there there are aspects of semi Pelagian heretical ideas that appear in our own Southern Baptist Convention. Now I can say that because it just so happens I pastor a Southern Baptist church. Now a lot of times pastors will make blanket statements like that but they won't point out to you an example. Well, by goodness, I want to give you an example of this this morning. Um, if Probably the, the, the best example of this came out in 2012 when a group of six former Southern Baptist pastors helped put together a certain document. And in this document that is talking about salvation, we see semi-Pelagian thoughts coming out in it. This document, um, by these, it was signed by over 350 Southern Baptists serving as denominational leaders, pastors, evangelists, church staff members, Baptists and seminary college personnel, lay leaders, and one of the pastors whose signature is on that document used to pastor across the river over here in Florence, Alabama. Now, let me just go ahead and say this before I say, say what I'm going to say. I don't think these men saw, started out thinking, well, let's, let's, let's creep semi-Pelagianism into uh, Southern Baptist life and thought. I don't think that that's where they want. What they, what they did is they did sloppy biblical study and exegesis and came to some fallacious conclusions. But nevertheless, this document, this document was published in the Alabama Baptist in 2013. It was called, and you may remember this title, A Statement of the Southern Baptist Traditional View of Salvation. Now, I had many people that read that document and thought, wow, that's, a, that's amazing. That's great. This is good. I hadn't read the document at first when it came out. I had a pastor friend of mine um, his, 
his, his name is, is David Sullivan. He was staying at my house. I had him preaching in a conference. And he said, what do you think about this document that's been put out by some of our former leaders in, in the convention? And he said, what, what, do you, what do you think about this, this document? And I said, well, I'm not really familiar with it. I haven't taken the time to read it yet, which I have since then. But he said, well, let me just quote to you a little section of it. And he quoted me a little section of it. And I looked at him with this look and I said, my goodness, that's nothing but Pelagianism. He said, that's right. Now, let me say to you four things about that document, and then I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about out of that document. That document that you read, some of you in the Alabama Baptist, that document is what you call a reaction. It was a reaction to the more historical, God-centered understanding of salvation that has always, that that the, the true gospel, the purity of the gospel that earlier Baptist leaders were faithful to. It was reaction to that and trying to attack that and the more historical understanding of the purity of the gospel came under fire in the 1950s and the 1960s. Um... But, so it was really a reaction to that. The document, the title, it's deceptive. By way of calling it a traditional Southern Baptist view. Guys, there's nothing traditional about it. It's new. It's new in the sense that it's not traditional to, to, to Southern Baptist life. It, it is outside the historical norm. Okay? So that's deceptive. It's a tradition according to a lot of people that began to take leadership positions in the 50s and 60s in the convention. Um, the document, a third thing I'll tell you about that document, it relies on mass appeal rather than sound biblical exegesis. It's sloppy exegesis. It's, uh, these, these men had a reactionary mindset which resulted in a semi-form of Pelagianism. And again, to be honest, I don't think that that was their intent, but because they were more worried about fighting against those that hold the historical view, which is someone like me, because they were concerned about that, they just reacted and didn't give any thought to their, to their understanding of what they were doing with the Scriptures. And the fourth thing I would say about that document as well, it's, it is the serious charge, is that there is Pelagianistic, semi-Pelagianistic ideas in it. Now, just to remind you, what is Pelagianism or semi-Pelagianism? It's a view that claims human beings have the ability. Hear me now. That human beings have the ability within themselves to desire God and pursue salvation through the act of the free will without God operating in the human heart first. Now that's, you say, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, let me read to you, first of all, a passage that comes out of that document, article number two on the sinfulness of man. It says, we, and there were some denials and affirmations in it, and one of the denials was this, we deny that Adam's sin resulted in the incapacitation of any person's free will or rendered any person guilty before he has personally sinned. And I want to say, have you ignored David in Psalm 32? I was sinful from the time that my mother conceived me. 
I want to say, are you ignoring the words of Jesus in John chapter 6 and verse 44 when He said, no one comes to the Father except He that the Spirit comes to Him unless the Spirit draws Him. Have you ignored those passages like that that Paul wrote in Romans when he says there is no one who seeks after God? No, not one. Unless the Spirit of God moves within your heart and brings you to a place to where you can receive Christ by faith, you don't come to God. You don't. Now, you may think, what's the big deal? Well, here's the big deal. Here's the big deal. You realize that when you start to remove the reality of a will that is marred by sin, you're on a pathway that, number one, it insults the gospel of grace. Number two, it minimizes the need for divine grace. And number three, it makes an idol out of your ability. You do not come to Christ on your own ability. You come to Christ by the power of the Spirit of God. It is He. That's true. Don't listen. But we, so many, don't understand the importance of a simple understanding like that. It goes back to. Pelagius. Now, I'm not saying, hear me now, I'm not saying those men are heretics. Or that they're false teachers. I'm saying that they simply did some sloppy biblical exegesis and they came that good hearted men that came to some pretty bad conclusions. And some of them since then have backed away from that. Okay? But you see, little things like that are important. Little things. What you think, what you believe, what you think about the script. It's the listen, this book isn't open for you to sit around and just come to your own opinion about it. There's a way it's rightly divided. There are consequences to your theology. There are consequences to what you think. That's why we must be contenders for the faith once for all delivered unto the saints. That's why Paul wrote Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 16. He said to that young pastor, watch your life and your doctrine closely. Persist in this and you will save yourself and your hearer. And he wasn't talking about spiritual salvation. He was talking about saving them from the pain of false teaching. Now, today, I want us to look at this passage of Scripture in Jude. So we continue to unmask the false teacher in verses 12 and 13. And as, you, as I read 12 and 13, I don't know about you, but you can almost feel the holy anger and the volatile language that Jude used in describing these false teachers. You can hear it because it's, it's a serious thing. It's it's a serious thing. He, he calls them hidden rocks, waterless clouds, fruitless trees, twice dead, wild waves, and wandering stars. And they came right out from among their ranks. Right out from among them. It, it's interesting the, the imagery that he gives, that Jude gives of these false teachers and these heretics. It's almost in stark contrast to who Jesus Christ is. It's interesting. I like how 
Maxwell Coder, the Old Testament commentator, said this about the language he uses and how it's juxtaposed against the person and work of Jesus Christ. He said this, one is reminded by way of contrast with the Lord whom these men, these men the false teachers deny. He is, as Jesus, the rock of our salvation. They are, the false teacher, hidden rocks, threatening shipwreck to the faith. He, that is Jesus, comes with clouds to refresh his people forever. These, the false teachers, are clouds which do not even bring temporary blessing. He, that is Jesus, is the tree of life. These are trees of death. He leads us, that is Jesus, beside still waters. These are like restless, a restless troubled sea. He, that is Jesus, is the bright and morning star heralding the coming day. These, the, that is the false teachers, are wandering stars presaging a night of eternal darkness, end quote. Now let's unpack this this morning and I would, would give you five characteristics, five more characteristics of the false teachers here. Five major characteristics. And I'm going to tell you a little, few little things in there about them. But five major characteristics this morning. And I actually gave Jacob these to put on the screen so you can, can have them in front of you and write them down as well this morning. So the first thing that I would say that comes right out of the text, just following the logic of the text, is that these men, they are, talking about the false teachers, they are hidden reefs. They are hidden reefs. You say, what is a hidden, hidden reef? Well, a hidden reef, reefs, plural, are dangerous rocks that jut out into the sea and they remain hidden just beneath the surface of the water. You may be out in a boat in one of these areas and you can't see them. Oh, but they're there. They're there and... And, and, and they pose a threat. They pose a danger. Um, they go unnoticed. And at least until a ship smashes into one of them. And it, and it blows a hole into the bottom of it. Tearing a hole, likely causing it to sink. Well, these false teachers who are among us, who have secretly turned away from the faith, once for all delivered to the saints... Um, they're like these hidden rocks. And their presence, they're with us, and their presence is, is dangerous. It's dangerous. Again, that's why Paul wrote Timothy again. Watch your life and doctrine, your teaching. Watch it closely. You'll save both yourself and your hearer. They're dangerous. Now, he says some things about these. He says that these hidden reefs among us, they are hidden... Here in this text, he talks about the love feast. They're hidden in our love feast. Now, we don't really have the love feast anymore. This was a, a, an aspect of, of the early church life. It wasn't an ordinance from the Lord. This was just something that they did in which they would gather together. Um, it sort of disappeared in the, the, the first century, and it really disappeared because of abuse and abuse that would happen in it. And a lot of the abuse that sprang out because of false teachers and false Christians that would be in their midst. But it was a, it was a beautiful time when they would have it. It would, it, would, it would express unity amongst the poor and the rich and all kinds of people within church life. I, like what MacArthur says about the, the ancient love feast. He says, The love feast brought together the rich and the poor, the two dominant economic classes of the ancient world. The love feast followed the rich to share... Uh, 
the, the Luffies allowed the rich to share what they possessed with the poor. For a Christian who was a slave, the feast might have been the only good meal he had all week. It was held on the Lord's Day prior to sharing in communion. Everyone brought what they could afford and tangibly shared with others as a demonstration of their love. End quote. Here's what you'd say. Right there in that glorious festivity, right there among them, were these false teachers. They were right there. They were, they were amongst the people. They were building relationships. They were right there. They were laughing. They were cutting up. They were socializing. They were pouring drinks. They were serving food. They were waiting tables. We may not have love feasts like they did in the first century church today, but I can assure you, they're right here with us in our fellowships and at our camps and at our conferences. And they are dangerous rocks just beneath the surface. And they're ready to destroy. Destroy. Damage. The life that drifts from the truth and smashes into one of them. They're dangerous. Now, these hidden reefs, uh, he says they're hidden at our love fest. He gives that example. They're, they're hidden for a lust fest because he says these shepherds are what? They're feeding themselves. They're just about feeding themselves. The false teacher is all about feeding himself, his own passion and his lust. They may appear to be servants for your good. Okay, They may appear that way. They may, as Peter talks about, promise you freedom, but they themselves are slaves to their own corruption. To their, they feed their own pride. They feed their own ego. ego. They're not concerned about the glory of God or the glory of Christ. They're only concerned. Their only concern is for themselves. So, they're, they're hidden for a lust feast. No, they're, they're hidden reefs. Number two, though, what are they? They are waterless clouds. They are waterless clouds. That's what the text says. Now, that's an interesting way of describing them. That's sort of an oxymoron, a, a kind of a, a, a contradictory statement if you'll think about it because what is a cloud? A cloud, they're waterless clouds, but what is a cloud? A cloud is composed of moisture. And certain types of clouds return that moisture to the ground in the form of rain. Now at certain times of the year it can return to this freezing rain that we, we're looking at possibly tonight and Tuesday night. So Archie, you stay off the road, alright? <laughs> But that's what a cloud typically, a, wa a cloud is composed of water and, and it returns the rain to the ground, it nourishes the ground, it helps the crops to grow. It, it, there's, a lot of, there's good in the rain that falls. Yet Jude calls these false teachers waterless clouds. Why so? Well, I would say so because these waterless clouds are unsatisfying. They're unsatisfying because they offer nothing of real value. They offer nothing of real value. They may claim to have the answers to questions 
that have been around for the ages. They may, they may offer you the solutions to your age-old theological questions. Things that you just hadn't been able to figure out, but they have the answer to it. They may offer you some new revelation, but it's nothing new. It's just old lies repackaged in new, new, new wrapping, and it's just, it's, 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 it offers nothing. It's just empty words. Empty words that do not line up with the orthodox. Orthodox. The opinion that's always the right opinion of Scripture does not line up. Does not line up with that. They're, they're, they're not only they're unsatisfying, they are unstable. The text says what? They were swept along by the winds. Swept along by the winds. They're, they're tossed back and forth with every whimsical doctrine of convenience. They may today tell you they've got this revelation from God and this is the way, this is what you need to think. But now tomorrow they may say, wait a minute, I, God's changed His mind. I've got another revelation. We don't want to go that way. We want to go this way. You see that. In the, you see it within the, 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 the visible church, but you see it especially and clearly out there in areas where we know these are false groups and these are cultic groups. Take, for example, uh, Rutherford, one of the uh, leaders in the early movement of the Jehovah's Witnesses. Do you know how many times he predicted and said, Christ is coming at such and such date. The date came, Christ didn't come, so he has to rework what his thoughts are in order to say why it didn't happen that day. But then, like a moron, he'll say, but he's coming on such and such day. They're just tossed to and fro. Tossed. Because they have, they change it. You see that so often. Take, for example, the Book of Mormon. In the original Book of Mormon, there was the satanic lie, which is most of it, the satanic lie that black people were cursed. Well, in the hierarchy of the Mormon church, the central leader is known as the prophet. Most Mormons do not know the prophet, but the prophet speaks for God. And the prophet changes things when they want to. The prophet now says, that's not so. But it was written. Oh. And so those are just examples of this. And, and the list could go on and on and on and on. And you want me to tell you why they're so unstable? I'll tell you why they're unstable. They're unstable and they're tossed to and fro because it goes back. We talked about it earlier. What do they do? They reject authority. They reject the authority of God's Word. They do not submit to thus says the Lord. I mean, even though the Book of Mormon taught a heretical lie that was awful and terrible and racist, they wouldn't even submit to their own lies. They had to change it. Okay? But we, we are bound to this book. 
We are bound to Genesis, to Revelation. We are bound to the canon of Scripture. We are bound to the orthodox understanding of it. We are bound to saying what has always been said. We are bound to the faith, the, article the, the faith. Not talking about faith like faith where you come to Christ. The faith, the faith, once for all, delivered unto the saints. It was delivered once and for all because there's no new written revelation. It's not progressive. Oh, there's something known as progressive thought and revelation that we see that emerges in the evangelical church today, but I don't have time to deal with that this morning. But it's mumbo-jumbo baloney. Open theism. This idea that God can change His mind on what He has said will occur. I am the Lord and I change not. And in any place where it says in the Scripture that God repented, I don't like that translation of the original Hebrew, but where it says or seems to indicate that God changed His mind, let me tell you something, brother. Don't you just jump off in in, in some boat and say this is what it means. You better understand it and rightly divide it. Okay? Now, these men are number three. They are fruitless Trees, fruitless trees. Jude characterizes false teachers as fruitless trees in late autumn. Now, what are trees like in late late autumn? They are dry. They are barren. Well, the false teacher, the heretic masquerading as a servant of righteousness, they may be busy doing a lot of religious activity, They may be teaching seven days a week. They may be doing this and that, but behind all the lights and all of the glitter and all of the novelty, beneath the amazement of some new revelation, they're only dry and barren words. A form of godliness that denies the power thereof. They do not speak. A life-changing word, the word of Christ. They just speak lies. Well, these fruitless trees, what are they? The text says they're twice dead. These people are doubly damned. But the blackness, darkness, utter darkness has been reserved for them. Remember, their condemnation back up was marked out long ago. And it's been reserved for them. Twice dead they are. The wages of their sin is not only death, but it's doubly death. And I would suggest to you, the more you persist in false teaching and running with it, the greater you become in danger of coming to that place where you are beyond the hope of recovery. There is a place like that. Now, all they're good for is to be uprooted and cut down. That's what the text says. Sort of reminds me of the language of Jesus 
in John 15, verses 5 and 6, when he said, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and they are burned. And I would suggest to you they burn forever and ever and ever and ever. As Jude said, theirs is the gloom of utter darkness that has been reserved forever. Wow. Number four. They are wild waves of the sea. Jude calls them wild waves of the sea. Now, that's telling language. First of all, the sea is sometimes used to characterize the lost, unregenerate world. It is. Um, for example, in Isaiah 57, verses 20 through 21, this is the Lord speaking, and He says, But the wicked, who the, the wicked are the lost, okay? The wicked. The wicked are like the tossing sea. For it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Well, these false teachers are not like just mild waves, okay, in, in an ocean current of lostness. They are wild tsunamis of burning destruction. They are wild waves. They stir up the foam of their own shame, the shame of their religious whoredom and perverted truth that they spout out like the vomit of a sick man. Number five, fifth and final characteristic that Jude gives us. They are wandering stars. Wandering stars. The word that Jude uses here is a specific word. It's a word that refers to asteroids and then the smaller rocks in the sky we would call meteors. It would be referring to those. Um, and if you think about it, um, true stars or, or actual stars, suns throughout the galaxy and e even the universe, they are fixed in their orbits throughout the night sky. But the wandering star, it's the shooting star. You're out at night and all of a sudden, it's a bright flash, it's here, it's gone. It's the meteor. That's what it is. Well, they seem to arrive out of nowhere and fizzle out in a flash as quickly as they came. But every now and then, one will strike the earth. And it can be quite a cataclysm if the larger chunk, which we refer to as an asteroid, were to strike the earth. Now we had a, in, in I believe it was 2013, somewhere over Russia, we had a, a large chunk of rock, an asteroid about the... 66 feet, I think, in diameter that exploded in the atmosphere. You can YouTube, you can, you can even see their, their videos of where this thing blew. It's like all of a sudden like a bright sun and 
business windows, home and stuff was shattered. There were people that were injured. But of course there was no crater, there was no pit. Now the last time that an asteroid struck the planet that I'm aware of, uh, that's on record, was in 1908 near the Tunguska River in Russia. Don't move to Russia. You're liable to get hit by a flying rock, okay? But it was there, and that one was, it did quite a bit of damage. Luckily, it did not hit in a large populated area. But let me read to you some things about that one. Uh, the Tunguska explosion knocked down an estimated 80 million trees over an area covering 2,000, uh, no, excuse me, covering 830 square miles. It's, an est- it's estimated that the shock wave from the blast would have measured 5.0 on the Richter scale. The asteroid did not actually strike the ground, but actually, okay, this one burst in the atmosphere, but it was closer and it was much larger than the one uh, in 2013. Um, it's estimated that the energy of the blast ranged from three to high as 30 megatons megatons of TNT. Um, it uh, it says, you know, it was roughly equal equal to uh, Castle Bravo. If you remember, that was the, the thermal nuclear bomb that the U.S. exploded on uh, in 1954, and it was about a which. You know, that bomb being a thermal nuclear bomb was like a thousand times more powerful than what we dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But they're saying this, this explosion was even greater than that. Now you see, every now and then these asteroids, these wandering stars can do great harm. And so it is with these false teachers. This is why you can't just say, well, let, let them be, let them alone. This, that's why you cannot not expose them. That is why you cannot stand for theological error in the church. That is why you cannot stand for it. Now, hear me. Yes, there are, and I'm, when I'm talking about doctrinal, I'm talking about there are certain things that you cannot budge on. There are cardinal doctrines. Okay? Now, there are some minor things. Alright? That yes, that we can have differences of opinion on. But there are certain things, because there are certain, and ways I say that, there are some things that aren't as clear. But there are things that are very clear. There are cardinal doctrines of the faith, and the most central of them is the person and work of Jesus Christ. If we, listen, if you change on who Jesus is, you, you don't have any hope. But nevertheless, sometimes these false teachers, they, they can cause great harm. That is why it is so important that we are contenders for the faith. Do you remember I told you how you contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints? One of the best ways to do it, one of it is to love the Word of God, to learn the Word of God, to live the Word of God, and to expose and rebuke those that aren't submitting to the Word of God. That's how you contend for the faith. It's important. Do not... Some things you can't just dismiss and say, well, it's just my personal belief. What you think, what you believe matters. It's important. 
And we want every thought we have, every idea about God, every notion about His Gospel to be brought into submission to the written Word of God. That is important. Saints, we must be careful to take the words of Jude to heart. His hard words are like a preventative measure to help protect the church from false teachers who abound. We must contend for the purity of the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And as we do, we must warn others and warn false teachers of their doom lest they repent and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ who is our Savior. Amen? Amen. Grace be to you. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, I bow before you.